This is the wealth of the past. Part 1 of the Mongol Invasion of Japan series I've listened to countless podcasts over the years, but one of my favourites is Hardcore History. Dan Carlin is a god of historical podcasting, and I believe that his podcast should be protected by UNESCO. His famous series, Wrath of the Khans, absolutely captivated me, and it's a major reason why I want to start my own historical podcast. Ever since I listened to that series... I just couldn't stop thinking about the Mongols. They were an anomaly in history, one of a kind. For example, they reached Western Europe and were a force to be reckoned with, attacked Persia, present-day Iran, and they are still recovering, by the way, the relationship to the horse, their tactics, weapons, la-di-da-di-da. Now, I'm not glorifying the Mongols. It's easy to assume that the comfort afforded to us by the modern world is a standard operating system. That assumption could not be more wrong. The terror inflicted upon the enemies of the Mongols and the fear that they instilled carries on even today. Perhaps that's why movies are made about them. Scholars write about them. It's almost as if we're still trying to figure out the Mongol mystery. Did they ever fail? The answer is yes. They failed twice. And that is what this episode is all about. This story is about the Mongol invasion of Japan. Think about this quote for a second. Here goes. The supreme art of war is to subdue the enemy without fighting. Sun Tzu in the art of war. Spoiler alert, the Japanese fought against the Mongols, but weather patterns also had a part to play. The divine wind, or kamikaze, was instrumental in defeating the Mongols. It must be strange to hear me say, defeat the Mongols. And you may rightly ask, Callum, what on earth are you talking about? How could a tsunami defeat the Mongols? Tsunamis do not have any agency. Tsunamis do not have intention. Tsunamis are natural occurrences. They happen all the time. Well, it doesn't really matter what I think, because the Japanese populace believe this, and this mythology has lived on to this day. I was listening to a Dan Gallon podcast, and he addressed this quandary. Do you address magic, gods, and superstition when talking about history or not? Dan Gallon said that a history professor of his urged him to take these stories seriously, because in order to understand the mindset of the people involved in the story, you need to take into account their beliefs. Values drive people, and if the samurai actually believed that there was a divine intervention by the gods that ended up saving Japan from the Mongol horde, then I need to take that into consideration to tell a half-decent story about the characters who believed in this. Ultimately, this kamikaze, or regular old tsunami, changed the course of the war and Japan forever. The gods favour us. We can't be touched. Our land is divine. I'm sure some of these ideas were uttered at the time, and let's just sit with that idea for a moment. We all have egos. I've got a big one at times. But just imagine if you were living in Japan at the time, and a tsunami hit that saved your country from war, and then happened again. You may start to think that you and your countrymen were special, 
or that your land was divine in some sense. Ergo, the fact that they thought along these lines says a lot about their egos and the size of them. Now, I need to address the big bias in the room. I actually grew up in Japan and lived in Tokyo for 18 years, so this story has a special place in my heart. I'm Australian, if you can't tell from my strange nasally accent, but during my younger years, I never truly understood the Japanese mindset. I never knew why people from other countries were so intrigued by Japanese culture. I've got a hunch that this story has a part to play. I was watching a Crash Course episode titled, What is Myth? And it was said that myths have significance and staying power. In research in this podcast episode, I have found that the mythic power of the kamikaze that saved Japan has to be up there in the pantheon of mythological stories. The fact of the matter is that this story is significant and has had staying power. But the cool thing about it is that it's a mytho-historic story. To draw a comparison, Ragnar Lothbrok, the main character in the popular Vikings, and if you haven't checked it out, turn this episode off and go and watch it. Anyway, Ragnar Lothbrok was a real person, but the stories told about him posthumously most likely mythologized the man in such a way that the stories became myths and legends. Unlike tales of Hachiman, the Japanese war god, or Thor, the hammer-wielding Viking god, these characters actually existed, and a cool way to think about them, and for all intents and purposes, understand them, is to think of them as demigods. It'll make a lot more sense when I go through the story and cover supposed first-hand accounts that sound like Shakespearean plays. Now, I don't want to sound like a salesman, but lately I've been thinking about my motivations for starting this podcast. My interests are as scattered and chaotic as a Game of Thrones finale. I love history, anthropology, mythology, psychology, and philosophy. The full package. This is my attempt at fusing all these areas. But why history? The wealth of the past will utilize history as a conduit to understanding human nature through story. Ultimately, I will use historical events and characters as a funnel to squeeze out some truths about us Homo sapiens. I love saying that. I'm going to say that again. Homo sapiens. If you're thinking, what is the value in this? What is the point of listening to this podcast? My main goal is to get to the core of these stories. When storytellers, teachers, parents or friends are telling a good story, they wrap it up by addressing the morals of the story. Why? I believe that by addressing the morals at the end of the story, storytellers try to bridge the gap between story and reality to provide clues in being better versions of ourselves. I will also attempt to do this. Just in terms of structure, I sort of think of it as a tree. I will cover the roots of the story, mainly the mythology and psychology behind the stories, the tree itself, that is, the people in the story, and the leaves, i.e. the historical facts. Before I end every story, I will endeavour to unpack the morals or values in the story. We're in this together, and I'm looking forward to potentially levelling up in this crazy world by learning from the wealth of information at our disposal, the wealth of the past. Perhaps Japanese culture rests on a powerful mythological base, one that is intricately connected to its history. The Mongol invasion of Japan actually happened, and whether or not there was divine intervention is irrelevant. The Japanese people believed in the divine wind. The tsunami shaped their actions during and after the war. Although it is arguable that the vast majority of Japanese people 
truly believed that the tsunamis were actions by Japanese-friendly gods. The fact that pilots were willing to kill themselves for the love of their land and people in World War II gave vote to a war that took place 700 years ago by calling themselves kamikaze illustrates the immense power of this narrative. Okay, moving on now to another quote to think about. Every revolution starts with a battle. When I first read this, I couldn't help but try to interpret the word revolution in a number of ways. But the main ones that stuck were the revolution of Japanese culture and the Japanese mindset. The first Mongol invasion took place in 1274, while the second one took place in 1281. However, before the Mongols reached Japan, 13th century Japan was relatively isolated from the rest of the world, let alone Mongolia. While the Mongols were conquering other present-day Asian countries, Japan managed to live on in the background for 70 years, like that cousin that you hear about but never see. The only major military conflict at this point that was still fresh in the minds of most Japanese was essentially a civil war fought between the retired emperor, Gotoba, and the Hojo clan, a powerful family in Japan that controlled the hereditary title of Shiken, or regent. This was called the Jokyu War and took place in 1221. A major military conflict indeed, but nothing like the Mongol invasions of Japan that were impending. An epic battle against, arguably, the world's most powerful army would change you quite a bit. Imagine hearing tales of the Mongols and realising you'd have to face them. What sort of stories would you tell yourself? Okay, sure, if you're a samurai, then you may have a bit more confidence than most. But how about a commoner? What if you're a farmer, or a tradesman, or a cleaner? These are thoughts that most likely don't come to mind in modern-day Western countries. However, normal people, just like you and me in Syria, are intricately connected to the war. They don't have a choice. The Japanese populace were also about to realise how connected they were to this war. The lives of many would change for better and for worse. Many samurai that I will address in this episode were aware of this. They were aware that they had the chance to engage in some character carving and ensure their names would be echoed through the ages. Phew, that's the intro. Thanks for bearing with me and being patient. I will now attempt to cover a unique moment in history, an epic battle between two elite groups, the samurai and the Mongols. Genghis Khan, or Temujin, as most people know, is arguably one of the most famous men that ever lived. Hell, most people, alive even today, are related to him. At the time of his death, the Mongol Empire that he forged stretched almost 3,000 kilometres from east to west. The empire included parts of Europe, the Middle East and Asia. The empire he created is the conquering force in his story. However, the story doesn't end at his death. His legacy lived on. Genghis Khan died in 1277 from mysterious circumstances. According to the secret history of the Mongols, the oldest surviving literary work in the Mongolian language, Genghis Khan fell from his horse while hunting and died because of the injury. However, other sources suggest that it could have been from illness or wounds sustained from battle. Following his death, Ogadai, Genghis's third and favourite son, became the second great Khan of the Mongol Empire. Ogadai was seen by Genghis and other contemporaries as an intelligent, charming, humble and pragmatic man 
that would make a perfect leader to succeed Genghis Khan. However, Ogadar was notorious for being an alcoholic and struggled to fight his addiction. According to the secret history of the Mongols, during a campaign in China, Ogadai fell severely ill. Shamans warned that his illness was as a result of the Mongols butchering the people, land and animals of the Chinese territory. Ogadai's brother, Tolui, offered himself as a sacrifice by drinking poison to save his brother's life and put an end to the curse, as you do. In surprising shamanistic fashion, Ogadai was saved by his brother. When your own brother is willing to sacrifice himself to save your life, it really paints a picture of how important Ogadai must have been to his family legacy and to the Mongol people at the time. Historians have argued that his alcoholism may trace back to this traumatic event, but who knows for sure. Apparently his alcoholism was so bad that officials were entrusted to keep an eye on him. One story suggests that he was aware of his problems and vowed to reduce the number of cups he drank a day. He continued the habit by ordering his servants to craft cups double the size, so he could gulp down the same volume while appearing Khan-like. Ogadai eventually succumbed to his alcoholism, and died from a drinking bout on December 12, 1241. The man who succeeded him was the son of Tolui, Ogadai's brother who sacrificed himself. This man's name was Kublai Khan. Kublai Khan is the leader of the Mongol Empire in this epic story. For those of you who have watched Marco Polo on Netflix, Kublai Khan is the leader of the Mongols, played by the incredible Benedict Wong. Also, for a bit more context, Kublai Khan fought a civil war with his own brother 10 years before the first invasion of Japan. I feel as if this backstory to Kublai Khan's ascension to the throne is essential to understanding the man in the actions that will be carried out in the story. I find the juxtaposition between Kublai Khan's father and uncle fascinating. His father sacrificed himself for his brother and ultimately to the Mongol Empire, while his uncle didn't die on the battlefield, or for a cause, but died a slow death, one of alcoholism. I'm sure Kublai Khan must have felt a sense of betrayal and a longing to prove himself as a worthy successor of the great Genghis Khan. Can you imagine being related to Genghis Khan and being tasked with carrying out his life's ambitions? I'm sure you all know someone who boasts about their great-grandfather's half-brother being so-and-so. It's natural to have pride when someone in the family has made it. I'm sure Kublai Khan felt the same. But imagine the burden he also felt. That's what fascinates me, and I believe explains a lot of his actions. I want to try and keep this in the background of the story that decisions made were not merely political, strategic, etc., but deeply personal. Kublai Khan, Genghis's grandson, almost had an impossible task, to try and emulate his grandfather. Yet, was this endeavour futile from the get-go? I mean, Genghis Khan already amassed such a vast amount of land, perhaps this is why his name has lived on through the ages. In researching this story, I thought a lot about what it must have been like for Kublai Khan as a child. We've all been there. When you're a kid, your hopes and dreams seem tangible, but reality sinks in as you grow up. Were Kublai Khan's goals in life ever really possible? The people who may have waxed poetic about Genghis Khan didn't only know Genghis, but lived in the time of his legendary pursuits. For those of you that already know the story, 
Kublai Khan tried to invade Japan twice and failed. It almost seems as if he was desperate to leave his mark. I wonder why. Did his last name have anything to do with this? I find it interesting how the myth of the kamikaze may have stemmed from this familial struggle between grandfather and grandson. Legacies, family drama, shamans cursing leaders. It was all happening on the Mongolian side. But how about across the Sea of Japan? Who were the key players on their end? The first invasion of Japan by the Mongols took place in 1274. However, 14 years before the first invasion, a priest named Nichiren supposedly predicted that Japan would be invaded by a foreign force. Before we jump into any conclusions, let me just go into his backstory. Nichiren was an interesting character, in stark difference to his contemporaries. Nichiren derived inspiration from Buddhist scripture and became a devotee of the Lotus Sutra. The Lotus Sutra is widely regarded as one of the most important and influential sutras or sacred scriptures of Buddhism. Nichiren believed that the Buddhist teaching at his time was corrupted as it strayed away from the wisdom and truths found in the Lotus Sutra. Nichiren famously created a mantra or meditation in which he repeat Nam-myoho-rengen-kyo which means hail to the lotus of the divine law. You may not have heard of this mantra, but since we're on the topic, it is a chant that I have heard my whole life, as my dad is actually a follower of a sect of Nichiren Buddhism. I would often hear my dad chanting Nam-myoho-rengen-kyo in a tatami or Japanese-style room back in Tokyo. If you're interested, look up Nam-myoho-rengen-kyo or Lotus Sutra chant on YouTube. It's quite beautiful. Also, Dad, if you're listening, I'm still itching to learn more about the meaning behind the chant, and I want to say that you've got some serious chanting skills. Love you, mate. Anyway, back to the story. There are many revolutions, evolutions, and linear changes to history, but every now and then there's an individual that is powerful enough to influence the masses that they have lost their way, and the old way should be followed. I can't help but think that Nichiren was similar to multiple figures in history. Through the Buddhist practice he developed, he provided a way for all people to activate it within their own lives and experience the joy that comes from being able to liberate oneself from suffering at the most fundamental level. He was so adamant that Japan had lost its way in terms of its values that in 1260 he wrote a treatise to the region of Japan, aka the most powerful person in the country at the time. This formal document was called Risho Ankokurong, directly translated as On Establishing the Correct Teaching and Pacifying the Nation. Nichiren believed that the chaos of the times were a result of false teachings and false prophets, and ultimately that new interpretations of Buddhist teachings were pure lies. This was such a big deal at the time that Nichiren's suggestion that bad governance perpetuated these false interpretations of Buddhism resulted in Nichiren being banished from the capital, Kamakura. This was quite a downward spiral for Nichiren. So much so, that during his exile, he broke his arm in a street fight, called a rival of another Buddhist sect, the greatest liar in Japan, and declared that Zen Buddhism, the favourite religion of the Hojo family, who were the rulers at the time, a doctrine of demons. Oh damn. Nichiren predicted an invasion by foreigners 14 years later, when the Mongols actually invaded. As a result, Nichiren rose to stardom as a prophet. 
However, as his fame grew, he and his followers denounced all those who opposed their religious views. Ultimately dishonoured, Nichiren was sentenced to death. I wanted to start with Nichiren as a key figure on the other side of the Japan Sea, as it illustrates that from the outset, there was a religious element to these invasions. But Callum, you may be wondering, who was actually in charge? I've been getting to that, and thank you for your patience. The leader of Japan during the course of the whole Mongol invasion was Hojo Tokimune. Tokimune was the sixth region of Japan. Unlike Nichiren, he was a passionate follower of Zen Buddhism. His mentor was a renowned Zen priest in China, called Mugaku Sogen. In terms of crazy backstories, I think this guy is a cherry on the cake. Let's just say that Tokimune's teacher was a bit of a badass. Sogen's monastery was raided in China by the Mongols. The Mongols started lopping off the heads of all the monks in the monastery, while Mugaku sat meditating in peace. The Mongol invaders were so surprised to find a monk deep in meditation while all of his friends were being beheaded that they left him alone and he lived on. Well, I think that story speaks for itself. For those readers who read The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck by Mark Manson, let's just say that Mugaku gave zero fucks. My all-time hero and historical podcasting genius, Daniel Bolelli, often talks about getting comfortable in hell, or to get comfortable in uncomfortable situations, and to answer hopelessness with a defiant smile and a raised middle finger. Something tells me that Mugaku mastered this art, and this detached fortitude, as historian Stephen Turnbull suggests, would have been passed down to Hojo Tokimune. Upon the arrival of the most powerful army in the world at the time, the Mongols, Mugaku asked his apprentice, how will you face the challenge? And Tokimune responded with a roar of ki or spiritual energy. Although the leader of Japan, Tokimune did not fight a single battle against the Mongols, his leadership, with a Zen twist, echoed through the ranks. The Jito were administrators of land holdings, while the Shugo served a police function and were seen as military governors. The individuals that took on these roles were instrumental in carrying out the resistance against the Mongol invasion. Along with their appearances and weapons, the fighting styles of the Japanese and the Mongols were quite different. The Mongols and the Japanese were both skilled in horseback archery. People often imagine samurai as badass swordsmen of the past. This is certainly true, but centuries before the samurai mastered the sword, they were well known for their prowess of horseback archery, otherwise known as Kuba no Michi, the way of the bow and horse. This actually lives on in the art of Yabusame. The Mongols were also skilled in horseback archery. Yet, during the invasion of Japan, light cavalry was preferred as a strategy to overcome the terrain, which forced both sides to fight more on foot. It is important to point out that the Mongols had a lot of Korean and Chinese soldiers fighting for them. This was due to the Mongol Empire conquering Korea and China. The majority of these soldiers were foot soldiers and would have suffered the brunt of the attacks. These foot soldiers would make tactical shifts based on the sound produced by the loud drums and gongs used by the Mongols. This illustrates how organised the army would have been. I kind of think of scenes from Star Wars when the clones would collectively shift their movements like a highly choreographed orchestra. When arrows were fired from the Mongol side, this was done in short bursts, but with significant volume. Think of the scene in 300, 
when Leonidas and his men die in the shade of thousands of arrows. The Japanese, on the other hand, employed a more qualitative approach. Samurai would target a single arrow at an individual from the Mongol ranks deemed worthy enough, which in turn would bring the samurai glory if they were defeated. I remember playing video games when I was younger and going straight into attack mode against the big boss, as opposed to the little minions, in an effort to get all the glory. Unlike Legolas and Gimli in Lord of the Rings, the samurai were essentially going after all the big bosses, and competing against each other in the game of who can get the most glory points. Archery may have meant more to the Japanese over the Mongols, as it served as a religious symbol. The first arrow shot at the start of any samurai battle would make a loud whistling sound and was shot quite high over the heads of the enemy, behind their lines. Why, you might ask? This was a tradition to get the attention of the kami, or gods, to signal that a great battle was about to commence, and acts of bravery would follow. Historical documents suggest that at the outset of the Mongols landing on Hakata Bay, the signalling arrow was fired, and the Mongols proceeded to lull, <coughs> laugh out loud, mocking the Japanese soldiers. Samurai fury must have followed. Now that would have been a cool scene in The Last Samurai. Just my opinion, Director Edward Zwick. I am fascinated by this whole idea of glory hunting. Sources suggest that the retelling of these encounters, where samurai would call out the names of Mongol studs, may have been slightly far-fetched. Rather than cramming old-school Mongol Duolingo flashcards, sources suggest that the samurai would identify the Mongol soldiers on horseback that looked the part. The Mongols with shiny armour and a sidekick carrying all their things usually got picked by samurai, like a weird game of the prices right. Samurai would spot their worthy foe and shout out their names as a mark of honour for themselves and their family. I think it's safe to say that the coolest scenes in war movies is when two individuals decide to duke it out against each other in the middle of a battle. Whenever I watch those scenes, I always think that it's a bit ridiculous as focusing on killing just one person hinders your ability to pay attention to the hundreds of others who are all trying to fast-track your last breath on this earth. However, it's almost encouraged, not just by Netflix viewers, but literally by soldiers who fought these historical battles. There are multiple accounts of soldiers writing about so-and-so meeting so-and-so on the field. Isn't it ironic that sports are a form of ritualised warfare, yet it goes the other way around? It's almost as if encounters between two noble warriors in the midst of battle illustrates the human penchant for drama. For the two warriors and the soldiers around them, these one-on-one challenges add more juice to the reality of the situation. The death of your comrades on an unimaginable scale all around you. Think of Achilles. Although Homer's character in the Iliad is fictional, Achilles riding out into battle serves as a symbol to all the other Greeks that they are part of a grand story and they fight alongside heroes. Moving on from pop culture, most of the Japanese forces consisted of a prominent samurai leading a small group of warrior foot soldiers who wielded naginatas, curved blade pole arms. For the Japanese army, there may have been a magical quality to these battles with devastating results. The Mongol use of bombs. The historian Stephen Turnbull stated that they provided the first examples of gunpowder explosions ever heard in Japan and caused considerable surprise to men and horses alike. I can't help but draw parallels between this event 
and the Spanish conquest of the Aztecs, hundreds of years later. The Mexica had also never experienced gunpowder before. Imagine being in their shoes, and being equally intrigued and horrified. I've been told that novel experiences are good for you. I'm sure the Japanese soldiers in Mexica would beg to differ. Kublai Khan planned on initially attacking the island of Tsushima in Iki, and then finally pursue Hakata Bay, Kyushu, mainland Japan. In saying this, the Mongols didn't really have a grand plan of any sort, suggesting that they were quite confident that their overall military might would eventually prevail. That wraps up part one of the Mongol Invasion of Japan series. Thanks for sticking around. I should be finished with part two very, very soon. I hope you're enjoying the wealth of the past. Stay tuned, and once again, thank you for joining me on this journey. All the best, and may the force be with you. (laughs) 